Morning. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Indelible Grace Church. And it looks like the sun came out finally. So hopefully it'll be a little bit warmer. Uh, This morning we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 24 all the way through chapter 311 today. But while you're turning there, I wanted to ask us a question this morning. War, what is it good for? In 1969, Norman Whitefield sang out those song lyrics. This was during the Vietnam War, and the song went on to reach number one on the charts and was even covered by artists such as Bruce Springsteen. The song goes on to answer its own question, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. And this morning, as we read in Deuteronomy, we're going to examine what God's word has to say about war. And in our passage this morning, we're reading of the retelling of some of the first wars, some of the first battles in the promised land. And before we read, I wanted to share that the Bible is very realistic about warfare. In the Bible, war is not romanticized like by novelists or historians, filmmakers or video games that might even go so far as to glamorize war. The Bible depicts war as a stark reality that includes brutal killing. And we live in a real and broken and sinful world, and so did the Israelites. And war, just so we have a definition to start from, is commonly defined as the manifestation of violence to achieve a purpose. And so the Bible is going to present for us, and it does throughout all of Scripture, both the reality and the horror of war. And we cannot read these stories, church, with pious shock, or by thinking that they just didn't understand what we understand now. Rather, we need to soberly read these accounts of war because we see God using them, God using these wars in a fallen world for his good purposes. Because answering this question that we're going to answer this morning of war, what is it good for? It's more complicated than the song proposes of that simple definition of it's good for absolutely nothing. We see in scripture that there is things that it's good for, but we desperately need to consider whose definition of good, who gets to define what the good is. And so this morning, we're going to focus on that question. War, what is it good for? And while there's much that the Bible has to say about war, we're going to focus on this particular passage and this particular battle. And we're going to focus on this single story where we see God's people delivered into the Transjordan territory. This is the first piece of the promised land that he set out to give them. And so if you look in your bulletin briefly for a moment, I'll give you an overview of where we're going. In chapters 2 to 3 to Deuteronomy, there's going to be three points we're going to look at this morning. The first is that war is hell. The second, that war is judgment. And the third, war is deliverance. So hear now the word of the Lord from Deuteronomy chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of Aran. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and the fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, 
who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedmoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot. As the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sion and his land over to you. Begin to take possession, that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jehaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all of his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Eror, which is on the edge of the valley of Aran, from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilad, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near. That is, to all of the banks of the river of Joppic and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. Then we turned and we went up the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Eri. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Basham, and all his people. And we struck him down until he had no survivors left. And we took all of his cities. At that time, there was not a city that we did, we did not take them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Agab, the kingdom of Og and Basham. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sion, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of Aran to Mount Hermon, the city... The, the Sidians call Hermon Sion, while the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the tableland, all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Selkah and Eri, cities of the kingdom of Og and Basham. For only Og, the king of Basham, was left as the remnant of the Rephrim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in the Rephrim that the Amorites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. This is the word of the Lord, and it was given for our good. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, uh, we gather together today as your people. We gather together um, for baptism, for communion, for singing songs of praise, and for hearing your word, for seeing the deliverances, for seeing your mighty deeds in history. 
Lord, that we might know you better, that we might know the deliverance, the care, and the provision that you give your people. Lord, as we now look at your word, I pray that we would have soft hearts, Lord, that that your words would penetrate to our hearts, that they would change us. Amen. In our, in our passage this morning, and excuse me for how long it was, but I wanted us to get to read the whole story right off the bat together. We read the retelling of these first battles in the promised land. And I say retelling because this, these conflicts actually take place in Numbers 21. And so here in Deuteronomy, they're being retold to God's people. And throughout Deuteronomy it's rec- we, re- we see the recording of Moses's final words as God is preparing for his people to enter the promised land. But God is preparing his people for more than conquest or possession of the land. God is looking to equip his people how they are to live as his people in the promised land. And there's no way around it. Our passage is a recounting of war. And we see it again and again throughout the passage and we see violence. And so at the top of my sermon, real quick, I'd like to just very briefly talk about when we read about war in the Bible. This this is an important clarification for us. See, Scripture is descriptive about warfare to all, but it's prescriptive about warfare to very few. And so what does this mean? This means that all of God's Word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. As 2 Timothy tells us, God's Word is for God's people throughout all of time. And as God's people living in in his world, we can learn much from hearing about his acts with his people and as well as his character and faithfulness to his people. But there's the very direct command that he gives to Israel that's prescriptive of what he wants them to do, of to rise up and go to war. And so this is a direct thing that's given to these people into this particular moment. And God is using it to actually teach them. He's retelling this that they might have confidence as they go into the promised land. And so for us as the church, we're not being called to arms to to march against the Amorites. But we are, as scripture gives us in passages like Ephesians 6, we do see that there is a spiritual war that we are a part of. The spiritual forces of evil, of darkness and light and cosmic powers. And God gives his people confidence, not only in the Old Testament, but even now that he is going to see us through those things. So to put it simply, God's people as a nation go to war only by God's direct command. It's a command for this particular moment. So how does God provide for his people through war? Well, this first point I've titled in those quotes, uh, perhaps you're familiar with it or have heard it before, and it's that war is hell. These are the memorable words of a Civil War general named William Sherman. And while hell is a literal place, General Sherman is poetically summarizing his experience of war as the worst possible place he can imagine. In this short line saying war is hell, he summarizes his experience and the emotions that he felt on the battlefield. Very real emotions. And in our passage today, we see very real emotions of God's people. Earlier, I mentioned that in the Bible, war is not romanticized like it is in movies. The Bible depicts war with real emotions, like that quote from General Sherman of war is hell. And if you turn back a page in your Bible with me, if you look at Deuteronomy 127, 
we see there that God's people who had been freed from slavery in Egypt and were being led by him, they began to murmur in their tents. And this is what they say. Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us to the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. God's people are afraid. This is the context of the battles that we read about this morning in Deuteronomy. God, by his mighty deeds, has freed his people from slavery, and his people are afraid. They are afraid that they've traded their taskmasters in Egypt only to be led to a place to be conquered by another nation. And if you're still looking at Deuteronomy chapter 1, if you haven't turned back, we see in verse 28 the, the depiction of the Israelites' real fear. We see them say about the Amorites, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And God tells his people to not be afraid, but that he, in fact, is going to fight for them. But they're still afraid. Israel then wanders for a generation. And these real people have heard of the fear that their fathers felt seeing the Amorites. They're taller than us. Their cities are greater than us. They're fortified. Are, did we just leave Egypt to fall into the hands of the Amorites? And if you look back with me at uh, chapter 2, verse 24, the first verse of our passage this morning, we read God's command, rise up, set out on your journey and go over the valley of Aran. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, the king of Heshbon and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. God is going to achieve his purposes through war. The same God who called his people out of slavery in Egypt and delivered them is going to give them victory. Because God is the Lord and the creator of all things, all things are in his hand. We even had this in our call to worship where in the Psalms we see depicted that God's people are like sheep in his hand and there's grace and mercy and care and provision. And contrasting that in scripture, we see that there's also that God's hand goes out against people in judgment or they're handed over to judgment. And that's what we see in this passage is this clear contrast between who are God's people and who are not God's people. And we see this throughout the conquest, as we've even mentioned in the series on Deuteronomy before, that it's the Lord who fights for his people. Throughout Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus, it's the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. He fights for his people. They do not need to be afraid because he oversees the victory. Their walls might go up to the heavens, but God is over the heavens. And so earlier, I used the, that common definition of war to give us a starting point of that war is the manifestation of violence to achieve a purpose. And it's important to note here that this is not Israel's purpose, but this is the Lord's purpose for Israel, that they go to war, that he is setting aside for them a land. The only true God who fights for his people and our God is setting out to make for himself a holy people living in a holy land that follow a holy God. And so the real emotions of fear that Israel feels, they're retelling the story of the fear that they felt in Numbers 21 when these battles took place. God is telling his people this story again that they might see his faithfulness, that they might actually have confidence to continue to follow him. 
And God is looking to give his people this confidence because this generation will be entering the promised land, not only for the conquest, but dividing and living in the land. And it's important that they understand who their God is. So God reminds them that while they might fear, that he himself is the one who fights for and provides for his people. We also see another emotion in this passage as well. We see in verse 25, we read that the Lord is going to put the fear of Israel and the dread, and it's going to be anguish to the nation, that they're actually going to be afraid of Israel because they're given this victory by their God. So Israel's fear is answered These real emotions, war is hell. This is answered that God is actually going to remove their fear, provide for them victory, and he's going to make the nations fear and tremble. And God's people will take possession of the promised land through this war and conquest. This entering of the land is an act of trust and obedience. And so for Israel, the other nations might seem mightier, but none of them are mightier than their God. And I mentioned that our passage this morning is retelling this history that's recorded in Numbers. And why retell this story? What are they getting at with it? I've mentioned that it's to give them confidence. But if we step back from the passage for a second and think, why do we retell any stories? Perhaps we retell stories because we want to relive the good old days with a group of friends, maybe at a high school reunion or a college reunion. Perhaps we want to retell a funny story of something that happened because we want to laugh. Perhaps the story is about a loved one that's no longer with us and we want to remember them. Ultimately, whatever the story is, we retell stories because we want to remember. We want a piece of that moment to live in our lives. We want to feel the emotions again. And so while Israel was feeling fear, God is looking to give them confidence. Confidence in following him that He is going to, his love and gracious mercy, he is going to continue to be faithful to them. Just as he led them out of Egypt, he's going to continue to be faithful to them, abounding forever. God tells his his people this story to prepare them. He wants them to remember these real emotions of fear and that he was faithful to them in those moments. He wants them to have confidence in what he calls them to do. So this is the, the first point of the sermon answering that question of war, what is it good for? War is good for confidence. God is looking to give his people confidence in this moment. And the emotions are real. They're not buried. They're not trivialized. They're not romanticized. God answers the real emotions and fears of his people. God is showing them how he provides for them, that he fights for them, that he does not leave them to the hands of the Amorites. And this is true for us as well, church. That God does not leave us, but he sends his spirit to us to equip us. Or as 1 Timothy says, that God sends his spirit of power, love, and self-discipline to us. That there's the reality of a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light, and that God meets us in that space. That we might actually even, as 1 Peter 2 talks about, that we might actually even suffer awaiting the just judgment, just like Christ did awaiting the vindication of the judge who is more powerful than anything earthly hands could do to us. And so we see throughout this that God cares about the emotions of his people. 
And Israel refused to obey the Lord out of fear in the previous generation. They were afraid of these hands of the Amorites. And God delivers the Amorites into the hands of Israel. God is showing them his divine protection and care in the same way that he cares for the church even now. That the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. This victory is to get, meant to give God's people confidence as they keep living. And I think just like Israel, we, we, struggle, we can struggle in a similar way with the confidence of continuing to follow God throughout all of our days. Sorry about that. Uh, we, we are sorry about that. Um, we can struggle in a similar way with confidence just as Israel did. And it's the ultimate doubt that actually goes back to the Garden of Eden. The question that Eve gets asked in the garden is, did God really say? And it's asked differently throughout history here, this struggling with confidence that the Lord will provide. And how Israel asks it here in this passage is, did God just save us from slavery in Egypt to give us over to the hands of the Amorites? And perhaps we even ask questions like this still today of doubting God's provision in the future. Perhaps you ask questions like, is it really a big deal? Is my sin really a big deal if I don't think it hurts anyone? If I don't agree with what God says in the Bible on X, is it really that big of a deal? If I, if I don't care if I come and have fellowship with other believers, is it really a big deal? We, we justify in the same way. We ask the same questions that have been asked throughout all of history. Is God actually going to follow through on what he says? And questions of fear and doubting God's goodness throughout history are nothing new under the sun. And we see throughout all of scripture that God is faithful to his people. And even in, um, I've just gone through the book of Hebrews with the youth group students. And as you read through the book of Hebrews, you see this ongoing conversation that the church is in need of perseverance. That the church is in need of confidence. And as you reach towards the end of the book, you hit chapter 11, which has been nicknamed the Hall of Faith. And if you were to read each of the names in the Hall of Faith, and then go in the Old Testament and read the story of their life, what you would see is nothing new. That these people are not heroes like bronze statues, but that they're actually broken real people who struggle with sin, doubt, and confidence, who seek to obey the Lord by living by faith, not because there's something special to them, but because they sought to follow him by faith. And it, Hebrews ends up begging the question, you too can live by faith because they were able to do it too. And so we can look actually even in a story like this in Deuteronomy with war and violence and we can see the confidence that God is trying to give his people for them to continue to follow him throughout all of their days. Church, because God cares about the emotions of his people, because he cares about your emotions, we can have confidence in the provision that he gives. Let's go to the, the second point. Tracy, if you want to restake that one, that might help. Sorry, the, those of you at home, the, the tent is trying to fly away here at the park. Uh, let's go to the second point, that war is judgment. Because not only does God care about the emotions of his people and the real emotions that they feel, but he also uses war to judge. 
we read a request of passing by peace. If you look again at verse 27 with me, we see Moses in this message. Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass by on, through on foot. Israel's first desire is not war, but paying for passage. Now, a large number of people passing through your man or your land could mean it would just obliterate your crops. A, a, a mass of people passing through your land like this could literally drink a well dry. And so Israel's offering like, hey, we're not going to do that like other nations do where they go through, eat all the food and water and just hope to get through to the other side. No, no, no. We're, we're going to pay you and you're going to get to even decide what you sell us. This would mean great wealth for these two kingdoms in our passage. Moses even provides references, if you look back at verse 29 in chapter 2, he provides references of other kingdoms that they passed through peacefully, that they even paid for the food and water. And it's important to note these words of peace here. This is the standard that God is going to hold his people to. We'll read later in Deuteronomy 20 that this is the standard practice they are to have. But these words of peace, this extension, is an offer, but it's not a request. Because right off the bat in our passage, we have seen that they're going to the land that their God is giving to them. They're going through no matter what. And so treaties like this in the, in the ancient world presuppose the possibility of war. Israel is going to go to their land. It's essentially like these, these, these treaties of peace with presupposing the possibility of war. It's kind of like, hey, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. We're going to go through. We're going to do what the Lord has commanded us. And if you look back at chapter 30, we see the response to this offer of passing by peace and paying for food. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And so here we read something that sounds familiar in God's deliverances of his people. This is what we even read happening in Exodus to Pharaoh. In Exodus 7, 9, and 14, we see that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, that the Lord might have glory over Pharaoh. Not that Israel would have glory over Pharaoh, but that the Lord would have glory over Pharaoh. And in the Exodus, we read of Pharaoh's pride, that he was determined, that he was mightier, not than the Israelites he had enslaved, but that he, was, he believed he was mightier than the God that they served. And here in our passage today, we see King Shihon and King Og believe themselves as well to be mightier than the God of the Israelites. We know this because they both even abandon their defenses. They abandon their fortresses. If you look in verse 32 and chapter 3, verse 1, we see that both of these guys march out to war. They both abandon their fortresses. They have such confidence and pride in their army, they abandon their walls. I don't know much about warfare, but any advantage seems helpful. And so leaving your walls would mean you're marching to open war. You're pretty confident that you don't need the defenses that you can have built up. And both of these kings march in defiance, not of Israel's request, but of Israel's God. And for many of us, this might beg the question, why does God deliver some and destroy others? Why does God harden the hearts of these kings 
to lead them to marching to battle? This is a question the book of Romans actually asks, and it asks it a little bit more pointedly. Romans 9.14 asks the question, is there injustice on God's part that he would love one and hate another? If you have your Bible with me this morning, I invite you briefly, turn with me to Romans 9 for a minute. We're going to read verses 15 and following. Romans chapter 9. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exhortation, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he who has mercy on whoever he wills and he hardens whoever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make one or out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. God hardens Pharaoh's heart to glorify himself, to show his power, but also to show his mercy. The Lord hardens Shithon's spirit and makes his heart obstinate to put the dread of Israel into the nations. In both of these circumstances, God judges these kingdoms by death and war. And Romans very soberly teaches us that God brings himself glory both by these vessels of wrath and these vessels of mercy. Or if you recall Noah and the ark, God shows his mercy and grace upon Noah and his family and pours out his wrath on the earth and everyone else living in it. Vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Judgment for our sin comes to us all, whether by a flood in the days of Noah, by an army, or by the last day when Christ sits upon the judgment throne. (coughs) This retelling of this victory in Deuteronomy shows forth God's mercy and judgment. So war, what is it good for? Here's the, the second answer this morning. War is good for judgment. God uses the the nation of Israel to judge the nations. And we see in our passage that this judgment is total. Look back with me at verse 34 in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 2. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Or as we read in chapter 3, verse 6, And we devoted them to destruction as we did to Shithon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. So why are there no survivors? Is this cruel? No, this is not cruel. This is judgment. In Deuteronomy 20, which we'll get to later in our series, 
we read what we could summarize as the, the war charter of Israel, how they're to do battle, how they're to have military conflicts as a nation. And it covers many things. Who should fight, how to offer those terms of peace, including sparing of women and children. And at first, it might seem like God's will is divided or like Deuteronomy even contradicts itself. But if you keep reading in Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and 18, we read, But in the cities where the, uh, of these peoples that the Lord God is giving you as an inheritance, the, the promised land, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. And then it lists the peoples, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jezubites, as the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. This command is given for their protection, for their good, but also for the judgment of these peoples because of the abominable things that they've done in God's sight. The wages of sin is death. And here, God uses his people to bring judgment. <clears throat> the holiness of God's people in the land is very important. That's why part of the reason that these nations are wiped out. The promised land is to be holy. It will be God's dwelling place with his people on earth. And God calls his people to be holy as he is holy. So whatever is not holy cannot coexist with God or his treasured possession, which is God's people. These nations have been found guilty and face judgment, not from Israel, but judgment from the Lord. And later in history, when Israel fails to be obedient, when they fail to live as God's holy people in God's holy land, we actually see God bring in other nations to drive Israel out for failing to keep the promised land, for failing to keep the covenant. And so Assyria and Babylonia, they come in and drive Israel out when Israel fails to obey. God uses nations to judge nations. Later, Israel will be judged for the same thing. So Deuteronomy with these warnings, this desire for God's people to be holy, to take his word seriously, we actually know where the consequences go. And God is fair with those consequences. They're the same consequences. There is judgment for our sin and there is mercy for God's glory. All of us from the greatest to the smallest are in the hands of God. And as I've even already referenced our call to worship this morning, you are either a sheep in his hand or his hand goes out against you in judgment. There is no third hand. And in our passage, God gives these others over to destruction and puts before the choice between life and death. This is something we see throughout Deuteronomy is the choice between life and death, between straying and being obedient. And this is our God is consistent. This is the same choice that we have to this day is a choice between life in Christ and death in sin. There is no third option. So God is retelling the story so that Israel might be faithful. They, He's motivating their holiness. God is retelling this story to remind them of how seriously he takes his holiness. That he is judging and punishing the nations that are not holy, that they cannot stay in the holy land. A couple of years ago, 
Um, I used to have a Twitter. Uh, I ended up deciding to get rid of it. But one of the last things I remember seeing on Twitter, I've actually still been thinking about to this day. It's not very well worded, but it, it was so provocative. I found myself continuing to think about it. This was the tweet, and I, have no, I don't remember who tweeted it. You don't worship the God of the Bible unless your God kills people. And at first when I read that, it, it sent me spinning. It kind of staggered me back like, wait a minute. That's a really harsh way to put that. So let, let me unpack it a little bit. I found myself uncomfortable with this statement because the statement removes all context. Let me attempt to rephrase it. You don't worship the God of the Bible unless your God is holy and carries out judgment. Not just kills people, but he's holy and he carries out judgment. And he has mercy. The God of the Bible is perfectly holy. He carries out justice. God judges people for their sins and the wages of sin is death. I can't do it in the 140 characters. But what that tweet missed was the whole context of what gives God the right. He is the perfect and holy judge. He has the right. What's the, what's the verdict? What's the consequence? Well, the consequence of their sin is death. The story that God tells from beginning to end in Scripture is a story of redemption, saving for himself a people. And our God takes this whole, his holiness very seriously. He calls us to be like him. He sends his spirit to us to empower us. And taking our sin seriously means he judges our sin and that there is consequences for his perfect justice. And in grace and mercy, God provides a way. So much so that, in fact, God himself even gives what he demands. And Jesus takes the once and for all death for the sins of God's people. He takes the judgment that I deserve and the judgment that you deserve. The judgment that we see on the nations here is a judgment for their sin. And when we read the story, like that tweet staggered me, it seems staggering. God, left, God had them leave no survivors. But we can't miss the point of his mercy and grace, his treasured possession, making for himself a people that is to be holy. We can't miss the grace and the mercy that he chooses. Some vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy. So church, because our sin separates us from God, God provides both justice and mercy and judgment and grace. How are you feeling? This is kind of a heavy topic. It's a heavy topic for early in the morning on a sunny day. But this is not glee at destruction. God's retelling this story to his people, not that they might celebrate or jump up and down that these nations were destroyed. It's actually a beautiful picture of his grace and mercy for them, that he loves them, that he cares for them, that he's gracious to them, that he's making for them a place, that he's making them a people. And as we read it, we do not have glee at the judgment or destruction of our neighbors. But what we do have is we actually see a call for us to have greater repentance, to love him more, to seek his holiness more, to follow him. In the same way that we know what ends up happening to Israel, that they're, they're driven out for forgetting the covenant. This call to remember the deliverance that God gives them in these battles is a call for them to remember his grace and his mercy. What separates between Noah and his family on the ark and the families on the earth in the flood? God's grace and mercy is the only thing that separates it. What separates the survivors of the battle? Only God's grace and mercy. 
Let's go to the third and final point. God not only delivers his people from slavery and answers their fears, as we looked at with war is hell. God judges the nations for their sin. God judges everyone for their sin. He's the perfect judge. But God actually continues to provide for his people by deliverance. This promised land is going to be set apart. It will be holy as God is holy. God's people must be holy to live in the land. And this territory that they capture that we hear recounted in Deuteronomy here is the Transjordan land. It's the first piece of the promised land that they're beginning to take. And it's important for them to review because for them to be obedient to God in the future, they're going to need to keep following him. And remember how the people feared the walls and the height of the armies? Look back with me at verse 36. From Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of Aran, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Remember Israel's fear. The people are greater and taller than us, and they have walls that go up to the heavens. Guess what, though? Their armies, their walls can't stop the God who is above the heavens, as we saw in verse 24. Their walls might go up to the heavens, but they're not tall enough. They're not high enough. Their fears are answered, and that's what they celebrate. This deliverance that God delivered them not only from their fears, but into the land that he promised that he's been making himself this people throughout all of history, leading them out of slavery in Egypt. And the story retold is that they might have confidence as they enter the promised land, but not confidence in their own hands, confidence in what the Lord their God did, that he delivered them not only from slavery in Egypt, but also from the hands of the Amorites, that he has continued to deliver them, that he is the God who can deliver them, that he is the only God who can deliver them, that he is the judge of nations. So the answer to the, the, for the third time of war, what is it good for? War is good for deliverance. The story retold tells the deliverance of God for his people, not the deliverance brought by the hands of man. The deliverance only comes from the hand of God. And the story retold, it inspires obedience and repentance. It calls them to treat their sins seriously as they see the nations judged. And it also calls them to be obedient in the future as they go into the promised land. Throughout Deuteronomy, we see an emphasis that we could summarize of that God is saying, this is to be my land. This is to be my people. To live in my land as my people, you must be holy as I am holy. This is the Lord's nation, not your nation. God provides deliverance for his people through war and he gives them victory. And this deliverance comes in his judgment and in his mercy for them. He gives the nations into their hands. Why? To make for himself a people, a treasured possession, that which he loves. We might even think of the Israelites as renters in the promised land those that are given permission to live there, and they must continue to follow and be obedient and follow God in the covenant. And failure to obey God's law will lead to eviction. I titled our sermon this morning, Remembering Deliverance. 
That's because this is what God is hoping the Israelites do. That they might hear this obedience of how they were obedient in battle before and remember the deliverance that God gave them over these two kingdoms. This is why the story is retold, that God's people might have confidence in following the Lord into the promised land and into all of the days of their life. And God's desire is the same for us today, church. God's desire is for us to remember the deliverance that he gives. We can gain confidence from studying those who have gone beforehand, but we also have to be obedient and we have to take our sins seriously and we have to seek to live by faith. And so this morning we looked at the the topic of war and scripture does not shy away from the violence of it. And while Norman Whitefield believes that war is good for absolutely nothing, we see that God uses war for his purposes in history, including judgment. And the violence that is far too common in our sinful world, when we hear the, the word war that we think of, is so distinct and other from when we see God call his people to war. Because as an act of God's judgment, it's distinct. And so while the history of our fallen world, um, you, you might be able to tell the history of the earth in, through wars and battles, we know that peace is coming. Historians, people who study World War II, the Civil War, they don't know when peace is coming. Well, they do if, if, the, war, if the conflict's already over. But another war will follow and another war. But throughout Scripture, we see where things are going, that there actually will be a day of peace, a day with no more war, a day in which Jesus will sit upon the judgment throne, judge perfectly and righteously, and that in that day, there will be a day with no more tears, no more death, no more suffering, a day with no more war. But that peace only comes after judgment. That judgment comes first. And we look forward to the day at which there will be no more war, but a day in which we will remember our deliverance forevermore, and we will sing praises to the King with every tribe, tongue, and nation. Amen. Join me in prayer. Our Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you make for yourself a people. You make for yourself a people, you pursue a people, you love a people, you care for a people. And Lord, you you make a way. You make a way by the blood of your cross to bring us to you. You make a way in which there is peace to come. Peace that you offer us even now. Peace with God from the wrath. Lord, I pray that we would take your word seriously. That we would remember the deliverance that you give. Not only for your people Israel in the Old Testament, Lord, but also even for your people now, Lord. I pray that we would remember the deliverance that you give. Amen.